We are back for a special edition of the Cycling Tips podcast. We've left the regular crew behind, and it's just Shoddy and I. Shoddy, how's it going? Very good, very good day. Damp old day, so no bike riding today. <laughs> and we are joined by Ronan McLaughlin, who is one of our tech writers. Ronan, hello. Hiya. Welcome to the pod. Thank you. Nice to be here. It's a nice day today, so I actually got out on my bike. <laughs> yeah, today was the first day in Girona in like a week where you didn't need to wear gloves, so I didn't ride Swift today. Feels weird. It felt weird to ride outside. Sorry, all done. <laughs> let, 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 yeah, let's not go down that route. So it's been dry enough, but too cold to... Uh, anyway, you softy, you softy. I'm a total softy, and I'm totally fine with it. Basically, the reason that we have gotten this group together is because we talked very briefly in the Cycling Tips podcast um, earlier in January about the effects of Brexit on the cycling industry in the UK. And when we talked about it, I mean, it was just basically a handful of Americans plus shoddy chatting about something that, I mean, all the Americans, I can safely say, know nothing about what they were talking about. So we thought that it would be a good idea to get some more perspective on it from people who are actually dealing with it firsthand or who have actually been immersed in what's going on pretty much is why we we have this podcast here. Specifically, the reason that we brought Ronan on is because you live in Ireland. She says hesitantly. Well, Northern <laughs> Ireland. So, yeah. So why are you here? So I, I, I live in Northern Ireland. I'm from the Republic of Ireland originally. Um, and both, you know, where I grew up and where I live now are, are both within a stone throw of the Irish, Northern Irish border, which has been such a, I suppose, hurdle for the Brexit negotiators to, to work out how best, you know, to, to deal with that. Nobody wanted the return of a, of a hard border. And um, I suppose, you know, as it's taken four and a half years to get to the point where we are now, where Brexit's actually being realised. Um, and all the way through, it's been, you know, I would say quite nervous times for for all of us here, you know, on, on, on the whole island of Ireland, because we're probably the most exposed to whatever would happen to come from, from Brexit. So thankfully, there is no hard border on, on the island of Ireland, which is, which is, you know, great. And I don't think anybody wanted to return to those days. So, um, but, but there has been some implications of the trade deal that was worked out, I suppose, at the 11th hour um, on Christmas Eve, basically. Um, and, you know, in, in the run up to that trade deal being implemented on the 31st of December, we started hearing about companies within the bike industry, you know, talking about ceasing or suspending deliveries to the UK um st- ceasing taking orders from customers in Northern Ireland and vice versa um so I suppose we just wanted to find out you know how how this is impacting the cycling industry and are are these impacts likely to be long term short term or does anybody even know I can say having followed it for four and a half years it's been incredibly difficult to keep track of what's going on and uh, you know as I just explained I'm actually living uh, and one of the areas most affected by it. So it's, uh, you know, you can only imagine uh, the the complexities of actually trying to trying to work out this whole trade deal. And it might be some time before we actually truly realize all the implications of it. And I want to kind of preface this episode by saying that we tried our hardest to completely remove politics from the situation and just talk about it as like a overarching like what does this mean for cycling um so we we're not intending for this to make anyone angry or we're not we're not getting we don't want to get into politics but this is quite a big deal in the cycling industry when it comes to the UK and 
and also Europe, which you'll hear later on in the episode. So that's kind of why we wanted to just understand a little bit more about what's going on underneath, a little bit underneath what we were more so than what we were talking about last week. So we can get into the first segment of the podcast, which is Ronan's chat with uh, a buddy, uh, not a, really a buddy, but Ronan. Friend, friend of a friend. Yeah. <laughs> Ronan's chat with Tony, who will introduce himself. So here is that conversation. So, uh, Tony Connolly, thank you for, for joining us on the podcast today. Uh, we're Pleasure, going to, Rona. Thank you. We're going to do, we're going to talk a bit about uh, Brexit and its impact on the cycling industry. Uh, and I suppose just to get started, while you know Irish TV viewers will probably be well aware of of who you are and familiar with you from our you know evening news and that, but could you just give our international listeners an insight into your background and and the work that you do? So I work for RTE, which is the Irish uh, public broadcaster, and I've been based in Brussels for a good while, nearly nearly 20 years, and uh, you know, reporting to an Irish audience about European affairs. But since the referendum in 2016, most of my uh, output and uh, energy has gone into covering Brexit. In, in the past year, when the um, that both sides were negotiating a free trade agreement. I've, I've been doing a lot of work on that. Uh, I, I broadcast for Irish TV and radio, but I have a, I also have a podcast called Brexit Republic, and I, I've been doing a, a kind of a longer blog uh, every Saturday for the um, for the RTE website. So um, yeah, I, I know uh, quite a bit about Brexit, but every now and again I realise it's so complicated that I don't know everything. So hopefully I can help out and. Uh, getting people to, to understand the complexities of it. Yeah, as, as you say, it, you know, it is the complexity of, complexities of it are, are just vast, aren't they? And, um, you know, for, for both of us, I suppose, we're acutely aware of, of the the whole Northern Irish border issue and, and how that has, uh, I suppose, it caused um, one of the major hurdles to actually having all this wrapped up a, a, a lot sooner. And... Uh, I suppose as well, just for us, you know, two two Irishmen, it, it might be uh, might be better for us to leave the the political side of of Brexit uh, out of it, and and just I suppose the first rule of any uh, podcast about uh, Irish politics or Brexit. <laughs> well, uh, I think for we we can we can stick to the nuts and bolts and and uh... good stuff. Yeah, well, uh, I suppose look at the the impact that it's it's going to have on um, on on the cycling industry as, as a whole. I suppose and. I suppose while our international listeners will be, you know, there, and and you just give us a, a very good summary as well of, of what of what Brexit is and why it's taken so long to uh, to actually be be realised. But you know, all all the news stories of late have been of disruption um, of companies ceasing delivery to Britain and vice versa. Uh, you know, general negativity negativity around Brexit since since the deal was struck on Christmas Eve. But you know, I suppose my with all that, a lot of my international colleagues have been left kind of scratching their heads as to why anyone would would want this, why anybody would want Brexit. Can you start just by giving us some level of insight? I think that the past four years have revealed that EU membership was about boring, practical things around trade and, and rules of origin and animal health and Basically, the single market allows you to trade freely. Uh, it's the freest free trade arrangement in the world. It, it allows you to trade uh, across borders um, very quickly with, with minimum formalities, minimum paperwork. It allowed the creation of just-in-time supply chains, especially for the food industry, but also for pharmaceuticals. And the reason it was able to do this, the single market, was because everybody signed up to the same rules. So if the UK wanted to be out of that arrangement, then by definition, all of the complexities of trade without the single market uh, come into play. So on the 24th of December, yes, they concluded a free trade agreement that um, abolished tariffs and quotas. So when both sides are trading with each other, their goods should not get any tariffs uh, or, or quotas. Um, but 
that's the very that's a very simple take on things. There are a lot of what are called non-tariff barriers. Now, when the UK was a member of the EU, it was a member of the EU's VAT area. Uh, and what would happen there would be that uh, you would, if, if you're French, say, and you buy something from an EU, from, from a UK seller, um, you pay VAT when you buy the product, you pay it upfront, okay, when you buy it online. Um, and that's VAT is the British rate of VAT. And then the, when the seller gets that money, the seller in the UK passes that VAT amount onto the HMRC. Um, now what's happened is uh, the UK is outside the EU. So that whole arrangement ends, okay? So that means um, you pay a different VAT rate, but it also means that the, the company selling into the EU doesn't have that threshold um, whereby you don't need a VAT rate. Because of Brexit, a Dutch company selling goods into the, the UK has to get a, a UK VAT number, no matter, even if it's just a couple of transactions a year uh, and vice versa. So, so that's a problem that people weren't aware of on the 24th of December uh, because they thought it was all tariffs and quotas and then everything else is fine. But VAT is a problem, and it's a problem if you are buying uh, goods online as a, as a consumer buying from a company. So it's just all a lot more complicated. And within days of Brexit taking effect, um, hundreds of companies were saying, for the moment, we're just not going to sell into the UK. And also UK companies were saying, we're, we're not going to sell into the EU because we don't understand this VAT thing. Um, so that's why this, the first couple of weeks now of, of January uh, have been very difficult for, for companies because they might have understood tariffs, but they didn't understood all these other complexities. Yeah, and just, just on that, you know, we've seen a lot of uh, companies in the cycling industry announce that they were ceasing trade or deliveries into the UK and vice versa into the EU. You know, based on everything you've just told us now, do you see those as precautionary short-term measures until they get this figured out or or could this be long-term or even permanent decisions where it's just too complex to trade across that border now and 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 we stop seeing those products be available on either side of that uh, i'm hesitant to say divide but you know on either side mm. of the, the brexit line there well well i think a lot of companies were when they made that announcement were doing it as a precaution say okay we, we, we don't know what's going to happen. Uh, we, we, you know, we don't know if we have to register for VAT in, 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 uh, if we're buying from, or if we're selling into the Netherlands, we don't know if we've got to register for VAT or a Dutch company selling into the UK. Do, do we have to register for UK VAT? We're not sure. So they're kind of waiting to see um, how things materialize. Um, some companies you know, big, bigger companies that have staff and resources to, to do this will, will probably do it. Because after all, um, I mean, big companies sell around the world anyway, um, and, and they have to deal with different formalities, but they have the resources to do it. Um, so you, you may find that big companies will be able to adapt their systems to sell to the UK and vice versa to sell to the EU. Um, some smaller companies might just think it's too costly uh, for them to do it, um, or they don't have the staff or, or the resources. Um, and then, you know, customers might decide that it's cheaper to buy stuff from, if you're French, you might decide to buy stuff from the Netherlands or Germany instead of, I mean, a lot of this is guesswork and, you know, I, I could be wrong, you know, we could find in four or five months time that people have adapted and, you know, they just, they just build their own workaround uh, systems. Um, but uh, I think a lot of the, what they call the non-tariff barriers uh, have taken a lot of people by surprise. 
uh, and and that's that's going to take some getting used to certainly so uh if i can just back up for a second just to the country of origin uh topic that you touched on there you know when i when i think about the cycling industry and bikes in particular there's there's a um, you know if we if we look at a bike quite a lot of quite a lot of the frame or, or all of the frame or you know quite a lot of the components can be sometimes manufactured in you know asia or uh the or the states or, or wherever and then you know imported into either the uk or, or or europe uh for for assembly and you know sometimes painting or you know uh decalings you know value adding services so to speak before being you know then sold by by a retailer into the you know both sides of that market again with these new country of origin rules does that mean that you know some of these bikes uh could could we see some some of these options disappear? And that's you know how how extreme are the tariffs if a, if a bike doesn't meet that threshold for the for the country of origin non tariff trading? Um, is it just a case of you know it's a small tariff to be added on to the cost of the bike that the consumer will end up paying, or is it so restrictive that you know a lot of these uh, a lot of these bikes might not be options on on either side of that border anymore? Well, first of all, first of all, it would depend on where you're selling the bike. So, um, if a UK company is um, is importing frames and components from Asia and then just selling them in the UK market, then there's there's obviously no implication there. Um, if they sell them on to the EU, then again, you're getting into the rules of origin. Uh, I mean, in in terms of uh, you know what? What's the threshold to allow bits from Asia to be put into a British bike and then sold on as a British bike? I think that would depend on the treaty. Uh, you know, if if, dif- if different product lines have have different uh, uh, rules of origin thresholds, I'm not sure if 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 it's broken down into that level of detail. I know that certainly car manufacturing is given uh, you know specific allocation of thresholds. Um, but uh, it could well be, uh, and I could probably check this and, and email you on, but it could well be that um, there just is a blanket uh, ban on on, uh, on accumulation for non non car stuff, uh, and, and they will or they will just automatically have to get a tariff. Um, I know certainly the fashion industry has been hit because um, you know you would buy uh, fabric from. Indonesia or Bangladesh and then bring it to a warehouse in in the UK and then send it on to Ireland uh, or France um, but that's not going to work anymore um, because um, the, the, it, the, the goods are not sufficiently British to avail of the free trade agreement you know um, there would be a tariff implication there so it, it could well be that for for something like bicycles the tariff might not be that high I mean, a, a, like a, a proper trade expert would tell you, uh, you know, if, if you if you can find one, I mean, there are plenty out there. But if there is a tariff, then it gets passed on to the to the consumer. Yeah. And I suppose just to just to explain to any of our listeners who maybe aren't aware the the agreement between the UK and the EU is actually a twelve hundred and fifty page document. Is it the, the last time? Yeah, twelve hundred pages. And that includes lots of annexes, which, you know, would have a lot of these details about what what's covered and what's not covered. Um, but, uh, but, but again, I mean, the, the UK is trying to develop its own free trade agreements with countries. The, these things are not necessarily fixed forever. So, you know, there, there, there could be, uh, facilitations, uh, down the road. Okay. Um, that, and that was actually what I was just going to ask you about next, you know, we've, we've, again, we've been sort of looking at the, the doom and gloom end of, of Brexit here and, you know, extra charges for consumers and that, but. Is there another know, end? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's what I actually want to ask you, you know, is there actually yeah. any, um, potential opportunities here for British based, um, uh, you know, cycling industry or, or, you know, is it all very much as we've just touched upon and that it's, things are going to be more difficult and things are going to be more costly. Well, and you know, if, if the British cycling industry is you know going to be exporting, uh, in in terms of manufacturers exporting stuff, um, the, I mean, the UK is rolling over a lot of free trade agreements that it was part of as an EU member. So the EU has a free trade agreement with Canada, um, 
the UK has struck an agreement with Canada, but it, it just rolls over what's in the EU-Canada free trade agreement. You know, it, it's it's not going to be any more beneficial to the UK than what the Canada-EU-Canada agreement was for the UK. I mean, if it's going to stri strike its own free trade agreement with Canada um, that isn't just a rollover agreement, then, yeah, there, there might be some benefits there for the bike industry, but they probably won't be huge, you know, to be honest. Okay. Um, another area I just wanted to ask you quickly about was, uh, you know, Europe is traditionally a hotbed for competitive road cycling and any young aspiring riders wishing to eventually turn pro usually go to Europe at some point to achieve, you know, results that will eventually secure them a, a professional contract. Uh, Having, then having turned pro a lot of these athletes tend to base themselves in Europe in Spain or in France or in Italy or you know in, in a host of countries around around Europe how will these new regulations affect those aspiring athletes and those athletes living in Europe who are you know essentially employees of a European company that is the bike team that they that they ride for um you know are they going to need visas or, or how else might it affect them right so when the uk was a member of the eu um you could you could live and work and uh, travel uh, anywhere in europe and sell services sell you know work work in any company um now with brexit so what 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 both sides have agreed is that you can have a a visa free permit to go to the eu for um, 90 days out of 180, right? Um, but that doesn't mean you can go and work for 90 days. Uh, if you want to go and work, as as you know, as we understand the term work, you know, work for a living, get paid for it, uh, you need a work visa. There's a whole host of um, clauses which govern what this visa-free permit will allow you to do one of the classic examples given so far is um you know a, a, a like a, a british fashion model you know like before brexit you know she or he could just go to milan and work for uh, two or three months and earn a living on the catwalk and then come home again um, now that model will be able to go to milan to meet a fashion house and discuss a contract um or, or discuss some issues but the moment they want to start working to earn money then they need a work visa okay so you can you can travel with this visa free scheme for up to 90 days out of 180 and do certain things but you can't work so how would that affect the cycling industry well um you know it, it would depend on what cyclists from the UK do when they go to the EU uh, to, to train or, you know, if they're getting paid for it, then they'll need a work visa. Uh, I, I'm sure that, you know, there are people in Europe who will know what this means. Well, who will know in a couple of months time, you know, once they've digested the treaty and so on, they'll know what that means for the cycling industry. But um, certainly things won't be the same as they were before. And, um you know, you can go visa free for 90 days, but you can't really earn money. So if training, you know, if you're being sponsored in the UK and someone in the UK is paying your um, your living expenses in the EU, then you could probably go for 90 days. Um, but if you're earning money um, when you're there from a, a European company, um, that, that seems to me that would be problematic. But again, you know, a lot of this will be in annexes and a lot of this will be, you know, will start to emerge in, in, in the coming weeks and so on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's interesting, though, you know, straight away for for those aspiring writers who who maybe aren't or are, are not earning pro contracts or, or earning money for the cycling that they're doing. It's, you know, it's still not going to be straightforward in that a, a lot of those riders will have to spend a full racing season in Europe, which would be February to October in, in most cases. Uh, so straight away, yeah. they can't do that anymore. And then for those riders who, who are professionals or are getting paid for their for their racing, you know, if they're with a European team, you know, there could be there could be issues there for them. And should they be with 
uh, for example, Team Ineos, which I believe is a British registered team and British registered company. I could be wrong about that. Mm. Perhaps, perhaps it'd yeah. be slightly easier for them. But, but by yeah, I mean, uh, I, 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 to be honest, I don't know. I mean, there, there could be special visas for sport for sports that are maybe a bit more flexible than a straightforward work visa. Mm. Um, again, it would like there's no such thing as a European work visa per se. It's it's each member state would have their own. Um, uh, you know visa arrangements for for working in, in that country if you're a third country which is what the uk is now going to mm-hmm. be um so yeah i mean i'm sure the french cycling industry have have looked at this and and the belgian and the dutch as well um i mean they they would probably start to put out some notices on this uh, in in due course and i suppose it gives us an, an insight into the, again that just that huge complexity that there is around you know uh, sorting out brexit and and why it's taken so yeah. long to to come to this deal and you know it's interesting to hear there you know what the what you're telling us about the the impact on on industry and you know for for us we might see that result in higher prices on bikes and that and then you, you mentioned the fashion industry and you know the, i suppose in terms of a trade deal there's no difference between uh a, you know something from the fashion industry and clothing for for cycling and so again that could yeah. could impact cyclists yeah. there but um yeah well yeah the, i mean the clothing where, where does the clothing originate <laughs> you know where does the, where does the fabric originate i mean all of this stuff will have to be looked at mm-hmm. you know where, where do you, where does lycra come from <laughs> that's uh, <laughs> i have no idea it's a good question that probably not many people thought about four and a half years ago yeah yeah exactly yeah yeah well tony on that note um i think we'll we'll maybe wrap it up there thank you for for your time today and for uh shedding some light on on this hugely complex subject and uh thank you thanks for your time okay thank you ronan all the best oh superb interview there ronan we're off camera before you were we started rolling you said you met him at against six was clearly a cycling fan as well he actually isn't. Is uh, the brother-in-law of a friend of mine who was one of the founding members of my local cycling club, uh, Simon Gill. So that's it's a friend of a friend almost. So very briefly in Ronan's chat with Tony, you guys talked a very a little bit about the impact that this will have on up and coming and also just British cyclists, cyclists in general, UK cyclists who want to race in Europe. And we also talked about that very briefly on the cycling tips podcast. So shoddy, you chatted with Joe Laverick cycling tips contributor and also um, rider for Axel Merckx's continental team, which means that he would be based in Europe this year. And, and this has a relatively large uh, impact on him and, and his career or his 2021. Okay. Then I would like to introduce Joe Laverick, who some of you may remember out there from a, vi- a couple of videos that I did last year. On the YouTube channel, Joe's a young 20-year-old, previously rode for Madison Genesis. Last year, had his first season in Europe with the AG2 Alamondio feeder team, Chambry Cyclist. And this year, you're stepping it up, mate, aren't you? You've been snapped up by uh, Axel Merckx's team, the very famous, the very... Um, wanted team for by, by many young cyclists that Hagen's Berman... Exxon, am I pronouncing that one right, mate? Um, Hagen's Berman Axion, but yeah, not bad, mate, not bad. Okay, a big a big change for you, isn't it, mate? Admittedly, this is a, a US-based team or US-sponsored team, but you'll be basing yourself out of Girona. So last year, as we said, you were with the French team based in Chambry in the French Alps. This year, you were, well, hopefully moving to Girona, aren't you? That, that's the key word in all this, I think, hopefully. Um Say so today is the 13th of January as we record this, and I was meant to be flying out there eight days ago, um, but that was already put back the first time. Granted, that is because of COVID, but um, yeah, there's so many hoops to jump through now. We've uh, well, now we're going through the aftermath of Brexit, so it's not as easy as it was in previous years. Because obviously, last year I I can say I've experienced it as well when we were within within the EU. Uh, going to Europe and racing your bike, it's very easy, isn't it? Or was, was previously very easy. You'd just literally rock up in Europe, 
uh, put your kit on from the team that they've supplied and race. There was no red tape, as they say. Did you find that last year? Yeah, well, last year I I basically I drove my car over, so I drove my British car over on like 9th, 10th of Jan and then stayed pretty much all season. Obviously, I came home during the COVID periods, but apart from that, no visas, no residency, no nothing. It was just, I don't know, rock up and almost do what you want, which was the joy of it. Yeah, it's a, I, I can say from personal experience, I visited many French hospitals and there was no, again, red tape there. You didn't have to really sign anything. It was all taken care, for, care of because, yeah, we were within the EU. Obviously, that's all changing now. So go on, explain to us how things have changed for you, how, yeah, how the uh, different situation has caused you to approach this season with basically just wanting to race in Europe, if it has changed for you at all. Well, there's a few things. So firstly, um, the UK now have the 90 and 180 rule, which in layman's terms means you can only be in the EU um, or the Schengen zone, I think, for 90 days out of 180, which if you want to live and race in Europe as a bike racer is, well, it's impossible because you need to be there pretty much full time. So to get around that, I'm personally going for Spanish residency. Um, and because I applied in the transition period, which was in 2020, I was actually pretty cheeky and I put my final application in on December the 30th um, and the transition period ended at 11pm on December the 31st. So I got in there pretty late. Um, but that should, if it's accepted, just give me the same rights as I had before Brexit. But for those who either didn't put their residency in or didn't know about that it's kind of the unknown and that's the fear for us all so we don't know well we do know that you'll have to get some sort of extra visa we don't know how to get the visa we don't know what visa we'll need um we don't know if we need a work visa or just an extended kind of holiday travel visa there's so many unknowns and that's kind of the issue at the minute because in two or three years time we might look back and go oh look in 2021 you did this you did that and it's easy but at the minute, we're just kind of living through, yeah, the complete unknown. And it's, you learn as you go, which is, I don't know, it's it's a little bit stressful because you don't really know what you're going to be allowed to do um, or where you're going to be allowed to live. And for me, I should be okay because if my residency falls through, I should be able to get a work visa. But it's for, it's for the guys on the Dave Rayner Foundation who are racing for the amateur teams. That's not work. Um so you can't get a work visa. And then there's kind of the unknown after that. So it's a bit of a headache for a, for a lot of people. Okay, so you're obviously not having to go through the new system, which uh, the Spanish are, are dictating that to live in Spain permanently. You need to be earning £2,300, I think it is, which is about €2,500 a month. You're, you're going for through the system where it was a kind of linked to the previous setup that we used to have with the EU or the Britain used to have with the EU. Is that correct in saying? Yeah, that's correct. And I spoke to a, a lawyer in Girona, um in December and she said it's kind of the equivalent of if you get your application in before December the 31st, it's the rules before Brexit apply. After December the 31st, it's the same rules as, as if you had an American or an Australian passport. And I think the figure she quoted was something like 25 to 30,000 euros, like in a bank. Um, and that's the issue. Like, not many people have 25 grand just sitting in a bank. Um, and I mean, these rules might be changing. There's not actual guidance yet. But as a whole, I just simply couldn't afford it. Um, at this, well, I just couldn't afford it um, with the new rules. It's already cost you money to speak to a uh, a lawyer to get all the advice there. <laughs> yeah, lawyers don't come cheap, um, especially when <laughs> especially when you're trying to rush it through. Um, yeah, I've got a I've got the first half of my bill to pay in the next couple of days, which is it's sad times. But at the end of the day, for what it costs me, if it gives me residency for five years, then it's worth its weight in in gold. 
Yeah, and hey, the team's pretty uh, pretty good at... It's got a good lot of history at churning out professionals to the pro ranks, so could be a small price to pay to get that big contract at a later date. Exactly, and the thing is there, it's... Um, I mean, don't get me wrong, it's, it's great if I get it, but then there's things which kind of in the past we didn't have to do. So, for example, last year, um, so in 2020, I raced all year on on like kind of a cycling version of travel insurance. And it was about, I don't know, 150, 200 pounds a year. And this year I've had to get private Spanish health insurance, which is around 600 euros for the year. Um, so that's a new requirement because as you mentioned previously, our European health card is no longer valid in, in many a Spanish or French or whatever hospitals. So that's another hoop you've got to jump through. Is the team helping with organising all this, or are you left to your own devices? Um, you're kind of left to your own devices because the team don't really have an idea. So we, and that's not a criticism of the team, it's just a fact. Like, we was on a Zoom call with them the other day, the whole team got together. And um, when they can, they help the Americans, because obviously they've got a lot of history in helping the Americans get visas and, and whatever. But for my situation, they're just like, we don't know what to do. We can provide you any documents if needed. So like your contract or a letter to say you're signing and raising for us, but you, we can't help you because we don't know. Um, and it's, well, there's a lot of riders messaging each other on Instagram, Facebook, whatever, saying, oh, how are you getting around the 9180? What are you doing? What are you doing? And it's just kind of a big, everyone's asking each other and hoping someone comes up with an answer. But well, to the best of my knowledge, nobody's got it yet. So as everybody, if well, as I hope many people know, Girona is sort of the hotbed of the European cycling world. You get a lot of professionals living there, amateurs living there, uh, wannabe cyclists living there. Do, do you reckon we can see a bit of um, a, a few less riders there this year than previous years due to all this situation? Potentially. Um, I think it's quite interesting on the British front. I think there's a lot of people searching for Irish relatives, um, and I know a, I know a fair chunk of people who are going through like the the process to get an Irish passport, um, which is a cheeky way around it. But I think for Brits in my situation, who so just backtracking quickly, if you already live in Girona, you probably got residency, probably, um, so they'll be okay. But for guys in my situation who are just looking at moving over, I think if you're world tour, it won't be the end of the world um, because most guys have access to funds. Whereas at the slightly lower level, I think we'll see more people just basing themselves in the UK and traveling over for races until there's a little bit more certainty. Yeah, definitely. Even if you're riding for a Spanish squad, um, getting 2,500 euros a month out of them is going to be a, a tough call for a lot of the even sort of pro country teams out there. There is a obviously a UCI limit minimum wage, which is I think about thirty thousand euros, but teams are always uh, savvy at getting around that the smaller teams. So um, maybe we will see a less British riders riding for the definitely pro conti conti teams and as you say, amateur teams that generally help young lads progress through the ranks yeah and there's no well, obviously like foreign amateur foreign bike racers living in europe isn't high on the government's priority list um well i don't know what is high on the government's priority list let's not get into politics anyway. <laughs> um yeah so I, I can't really see much changing um i hope i'm proved wrong and i hope in six months time we can listen back to this and we go oh joe has been cynical and look, it was as simple as just getting this visa and it taking two or three days. But at the minute, it's just, who knows? And that's that's kind of the issue. It's the who knows part. Yeah. Pre um, previously, you, you, you rode for one of Britain's uh, biggest uh, pro-Conti teams, Madison, or Conti teams, am I right in saying? We were Conti, yeah. And Conti teams, Madison. Uh, they don't exist anymore. Can you see the British scene either flourishing from riders not being able to go over to Europe quite as easy and them staying at home? Or can you see it being affected by this and maybe um, lads not taking up the sport quite as much because there isn't the, the easier prospects of heading to Europe and 
throwing the legs over bike and giving it a test at the Belgium Comesses or yeah, the, the races in France? Um, I think potentially there's going to be a higher drop off of riders after the junior levels because there won't be as many opportunities to go out to France, Belgium or whatever. That's one option. Um, I think, yes, there could be a higher level of race like ability in Britain, but there's already a pretty high level in the UK. And um, I kind of stand by the the notion that continental cycling teams should race on the continent. Otherwise, they may as well just be elite teams. Um, and I know of um, Vitus Pro Cycling, who have forwarded this year, um, I was listening to a podcast with um, their old DS, who's now at Israel Startup Nation, um, Cherry Pridham. And she said Brexit was one of the like one of the factors in closing the team. Like it wasn't the factor, but it was an issue that nobody really knew what was going to be happening with Brexit. Um, and I just think, as I said, continental teams should be racing in Europe. Um, and yes, it is going to get harder um, after Brexit. That's just a fact. It's not. It's not going to get easier, is it? No, definitely not. Un- unless certain bits of paperwork, certain rules sort of climb out the woodwork and the young lads find loopholes and ways around of getting over to Europe, the the girls and the guys who want to race for European-based teams. Okay, Joe, let's hope, though, that we're uh, being cynical here. Yeah, let's hope. And come 2021, uh, the end of 2021, 2022, we find ways that uh, allow the young aspiring riders over to Europe and continue to prove what they've got to the rest of the world. It's a recovery ride. And there is actually, there's one last thing about Brexit as well. Um, it's, I think uh, James mentioned it on your podcast a week or two ago, and it's getting parts to the UK. Um, so I'm actually waiting on a part for my new bike. Um, it's just like, I can't ride my bike on the road without it. And my mechanic, who's based in Belgium, so our team service course is in Belgium. And he said, now because of Brexit, there's more customs forms to get through and there's more of a holdup. Um, so, yeah, I've been doing, I think I did like 22 hours, 23 hours on, on Zwift in the last week. And yeah, my Wahoo kick is great, but I want to get out on the road. Um, and I can't get out on the road until this new park comes up, which has been held up by in like for a little bit it's been held up because of the customs because of brexit so yeah it's not just getting out to europe it's things getting from europe as well so it's not just affecting bike shops and uh, the industry and the, the consumer it's affecting the aspiring riders as well who are on good good teams that supply equipment that's uh, that's quite surprising actually i didn't really i didn't even think about that yeah it's just a uh... Just add it to the list of slightly annoying things. All right then, Joe. Well, I'll let you get back on that kicker. Hopefully the bit will turn up soon enough. Yeah, thanks, mate. It was good to chat. Cheers. There we are then. There's Joe, man hopeful for the future. It definitely sounds like things are a lot more complicated this year than uh, last year when he was with Chambry Seaglist. It's... Um, I know we said we were going to try and keep politics out of it, but it is, it's sad to see that things are a little bit bit tougher. Admittedly, as we said on um, a previous podcast, Americans, Australians, anybody outside the Schengen zone does have these sort of problems. But to think that previously he didn't have problems like this and um, now he does and is not alone in that, there's teams that are going to be like this and that it could actually have a knock-on effect with with Brit racing in Britain and British-sponsored teams. Just kind of um, upset me, shall we say. So I have a theory on a potential positive to come out of Brexit and it relates to what we heard from Tony Connolly earlier around the country of origin and the tariff or non-tariff that will apply to um, a product depending on what percentage of its parts are made within the UK or the EU and I suppose the best way to sort of explain this theory is to uh, think about a bike while you know if we take a, a frame that is either manufactured in the UK or the EU 
that you know is obviously a large part of the the bike that that would fall on the non-tariff side of that country of origin rule but then we've got all these components and parts that need to go onto the bike to actually make it a bike and my theory is for companies who are based in the uk or the eu and are manufacturing their parts in the uk or the eu there could be an opportunity there you know that suddenly this whole market um brands and bike manufacturers and that are looking for for parts that will make their bikes uh, fall within the non-tariff rules and uh, the best example might be for the likes of, you know, when, when manufacturers decide in which group set to put on a bike. You've got Shimano and SRAM who are not manufacturing in the EU or the UK. Uh, and as such, they would be increasing that percentage of non-EU components on, on the bike. Whereas a company such as Camp Agnol, who do pretty much all their manufacturing in the EU, would 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 help that same bike fall within the country of origin rules to to be able to have a, a non-tariff applied to it so you know potentially there brands might start looking at putting on campag group sets and wheels or you know uh, other handlebar stems saddles whatever that are you know maybe not the biggest brands right now but they help bikes fall within the country of origin rules and as such uh, would have no tariff applied to them so it'll be interesting to see how that goes you know in the coming years if if, if we see bike brands go down that route of, of selecting components specifically to achieve that country of origin rule and, and to have a no tariff applied to their bike let's be honest campag or campi campagnolo whatever you want to say have always struggled with supplies so i, I reckon they're gonna Still find it, still find it hard days, but we can, we can hope, we can maybe, hope. Maybe a bad example then. I don't know, because that new, that new gravel group set definitely seems to be taking a lot of people's fancy. So hopefully that's going to be the step in the right direction for them to become. Uh, it's, um, I don't want to say major players again because they are major players, but seeing it on more bikes. And you know, I'm sure there's loads of brands out there, and you know that that's the only one that I could think of that is directly uh you know you have one manufacturer inside the eu and two outside the eu and the, those are really the three main players so um if anybody can come up with any better suggestions that we can keep an eye on uh, i'd be i'd be happy to do so it'll be interesting to see yeah the only other upshot i can think of um if it is an upshot is what i said previously on the other podcast just we touched upon was that with the pound not being quite as strong currently, it might make British-produced bike products a little bit more um, desirable to people outside. Everything from, yeah, custom-made frames from from the likes of um, film, is it, yeah, filament or Condor, even Brompton, something like that. But it's yeah, I think everything at the moment is yet to be seen, isn't it? Yeah, and I get paid in pounds, so. <laughs> <laughs> so, and and the the brands are one thing that is really interesting that we kind of, I think the general consensus from brands is we just don't know yet. And Shadi, you have a um, you have a quote from Muckoff, which is a British, uh, like basically bike cleaner, lubricant, and whatnot company yeah huge huge company outside the uk probably one of the biggest if not the biggest uh cleaning products company not just for bikes but motorbikes or that sort of stuff uh they've kindly sent over a quote saying at this very early stage it's a little difficult for us to assess how brexit is going to impact how we do things in the short to medium term here at muckoff as a uk-based manufacturing business we're not worried about our ability to keep producing the products our customers know and love us for. We certainly don't foresee any delivery disruptions to our UK-based customers. We could face some logistical issues with the products we send across the channel and we're conscious of the potential of increased haulage costs into Europe. We'll be crossing our fingers that this doesn't impact demand for our European network but again it's too early to say 
In good news, the no-tariff deal, that was approved on Christmas Eve was a positive result for us. We'll continue to work hard to keep offering the same high level of service and products that keep our customers stoked, regardless of the challenges Brexit may throw at us down the line. And that's from Mike Cook, Global Sales and Business Development Director at Muckoff. So they're, they're looking um, on the bright side of things, I think. Ready for some challenges, but prepared for it. They sponsor Canyon SRAM and a, a couple other teams as well that are based in Europe. Yeah, they sponsor a, a ton of world tour teams. Uh, mm-hmm. Bahrain, Mac- not McLaren, but Bahrain, victorious. Victorious. Yeah. <laughs> used what to a win. Sp- yeah. Ineos, they used to sponsor Ineos. Get it? What uh, a win. <laughs> first, first pun of the new year. <laughs> So, Ronan, you were also able to talk to Galibier, a clothing manufacturer, about kind of what their take on it is. Yeah, I was interested to hear from a a brand based in Northern Ireland within the cycling industry because the impact we've seen in Northern Ireland here so far is that, you know, quite a few of our supermarket shelves are sitting empty at the moment because they can't get food products into the into into Northern Ireland, so I just wanted to, you know, check. I thought with... you were. I thought you were looking lean, <laughs> more so than normal. I'm gonna to have to go Everesting again if they can't if they can't deliver food. But um, yeah, so I uh, wanted to check with uh, with a brand within the cycling industry to see if they're having the same problems. So, uh, Miles McCory, welcome to the uh, podcast. Uh, you're with Galibier clothing um can you tell us a thing or two about about Galibia and, and what it is that you do okay we're a small brand we're going 10 and a half years um we're based in the border of uh ireland between the north and the south so that's why it's quite interesting for any topic on brexit so i live in in the south of ireland and the business is based in the north of ireland and it is four and a half kilometers away we're where our warehouse is, but I'm sitting in the office stroke toy room and that's home. So that's do your bit of designing at night when you finish the homeschooling at the minute. So tough, tough, uh, tough juggling act that. So it is. And that's kind of why, you know, we wanted to get you onto the show was because, you know, you are living this, uh, this whole Brexit, uh, scene that is playing out at the moment. And, you know, we're hearing quite a bit about it in the press, but tell me is, Brexit, are you finding an impact from Brexit uh, in terms of, you know, your work with, with Galibia? Uh, it's been a constant niggle in the back of your head. You know, we're quite busy, so you can't sit down and listen to every news and worry about what the politicians are saying. But, like, we hadn't a clue right up until the agreement was made with the day to go of what way it was going to affect us. So we were rushing uh, a jacket order of a thousand rain jackets in from Italy and praying that they would get through on the lorry before the 1st of January, because that could have meant an 11% import duty on top of that, which would have resulted in, after that, you know, maybe a 20% increase in the retail price. So we didn't know what was going to happen. But when it came at the end and there was going to be a zero rat, or zero import duty tariff, then we were delighted. But the consumers haven't a clue. So we have a lot of trying to tell your customers that, listen, things are okay for the time being and there's no increase in retail. So it is a worry, but you can't be political. You just have to go with the rules that you're given and just try and do the best with it. We are set up to trade in the UK and we trade in sterling, but like a lot of our customers are in the south of Ireland, which is... And like we sell a lot to Sweden and stuff like that. So we're used to exporting, but we haven't uh, we haven't set up any jurisdictions. The new laws will mean if you trade it over a certain amount of a threshold that you'll have to pay uh, to that com- country's government their VAT rate. Whereas with your when you're in the EU, you pay VAT at source. So for a small company like ours, it's going to be extra admin, but you just have to roll with it and get it done. My missus will be doing that, so I'm not worried. Um, and tell us, does you know we've heard a lot about the 
Northern Ireland Protocol, as it's been um, explained, has that had any extra impact for you versus you know a similar brand that might be based, you know, on the mainland UK, or or have you found that has impacted you in any way? Yes, well, it has slowed. It has slowed post because people don't understand what's going on. So I think it is. There's a general error of not knowing. But and like anything, ignorance breeds fear. So you're worried about what's happening. So we have been getting a lot of emails from customers not knowing. But from a logistics standpoint, we're okay about it. You know, we're used to importing from the EU. Uh, we're used to exporting materials from the EU to China and getting stuff imported. So logistically, we're okay about that. Uh, it will cause extra admin if the common market policy has been just moved ahead for an agreement between the EU and the UK until the 1st of January, 2021. So if there's no agreement made again, there's going to be more worry about will there be a big import or will there be no cooperation? So, so for, for you then it's a case of this actually hasn't started out yet. There, this kind of been, the can has been kicked further down the road a bit and it'll be another, almost another year before you know for certain what's going to happen from here in your race. Yeah, there's been nothing signed. So there's been an agreement to do nothing really at the minute. Uh, it is difficult. I th- I'd say we're actually in a better position that we can import, we can set up another company quite easily in the south of Ireland and then import through there. Whereas if you're sitting on mainland UK, uh, you're at the, you know, it's difficult. There's a company called Luso that manufacture directly in Manchester, but I know they use a lot of materials in from Italy. So a company like that there, if you have to bulk buy material in before you would use it, you don't know where you stand that way. So It sounds then like um, from what you're saying that you're already used to this, you know, importing, exporting to non-EU countries. Is it just a case then of the only real impact at the moment is an extra bit of admin because there's so many extra countries now that you'll be importing and exporting to that beforehand was just a simple Absolutely. process? So it's very easy to put a set of gloves in a bag and send them out to an address. But then if you have to remove the VAT from it and then pay the VAT to the country where the address is, that's quite difficult. Like really... The hardest thing we've had is a delivery of leather gloves from Spain set on a factory in Calais for 10 days. You know, so there was a delay in getting the gloves. But other than that, they're generally jar trading. It's, it's been okay, other than the worry of not knowing what's going to happen. Will there be a knock-on effect for consumers in the long run, do you think, that that all, all this extra admin is going to create? Uh, there would there would be like we're we're quite a small company, you know. If there's only three or four employees, you have to just work harder. But like if we need to to employ another person to handle that, you know, you have to divide that extra wage, and then th- there will be a cost increase in your products. And we are a mid-market brand, you know. We try and operate as lean as possible. So then, you know, that, that'll have to be divided out among your among your products, you know, to make ends meet. So. It is a worry, but generally at the minute we're okay about it. So we've heard earlier in the podcast that the fashion industry has been uh, heavily affected by by the new agreement and by by Brexit, and more specifically, maybe on you know professionals within the fashion industry, models, and that that they they can't uh, travel for work as easy as they as they would have done before. But has the rules around country of origin? affected any of your garments and that you know perhaps some of the fabric used for them comes from outside the eu have you have you seen any effect of that yet or have... not as of yet give me an example if we if we bought fabric for shorts so if we bought lycra uh, those shorts would be 11 months before we could sell them so your band short your band material to get milled band grippers band a brace uh, if it's made in Italy, it's maybe a three or four month process, but uh, some of our shorts, we would ship those like to China. So that's in a whole nine month process. So that's starting all over again. So we'll only learn the impact maybe in next summer when, when it's being delivered, you know, if, if the regulations change. 
generally at the minute it, it, it's okay we we probably don't know you know there's an ignorance to it as well if the politicians only found out two weeks ago what the tariffs are going to be then you know it's in my next accounts i'll sort of know will it affect our bottom end anyway so i think we're okay i i do actually think for it just works out your logistics and cost so if you get a like for our we do a rain jacket uh, that's made in Haiyan in China and we export the fabric from Germany to China to get made the fabric the finished jacket coming back to us has an 11% duty to come into us and there's a 20% uh, import duty to China on that fabric as well so i'm working out the cost of the end to the customer based on those things and then if that if that uh, end tariff between us and the EU increases substantially then you'll have to look at where it's beneficial to get your garment made especially for us you know we're quite price conscious to the consumer so we sell direct so it can't be the construction can't be that expensive that's that would be out of our you know our brand parameters really and I suppose that's you know, for for a lot of listeners, it might be you might be wondering why why this has been all made so complicated. But I think you've just hit the nail on the head there, and that you know, uh, two huge economies here, the EU and and the UK, and and creating this agreement, they have to you know consider their own economy, consider their own their own people, and that and 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 protect those interests uh, and i think what you said there about you might have to reconsider where the garment is made you know that sort of gives us a bit of an insight into why these trade agreements and why these tariffs are in place and that you know ideally the eu wanted to keep as much manufacturing and as much of the economy within the eu as possible and the uk are trying to do the same so it's it's not that anybody is i suppose being awkward here just to spite BA clothing that's just a, a knock-on effect of of uh you know governments trying to do the best for their for their it own is workers. and it's an interesting point into you know when the garment manufacturing the actual people who make the garments uh, it's down to their wages you know so you have to be concerned about that as well uh if you know if you go i've been to several garment factories where we get stuff made in italy and a lot of the garments producers have moved their production to places like Hungary and Romania where they can get cheaper income, you know, where they can get cheaper labor. But you have to be aware of the people who are making it too, you know, so there's a minimum cost that you want to be paying for these people so as they can have a good quality of living. And uh, Mm -hmm. when you look around the world, you pull up outside a garment factory, you know, if there's more bicycles than cars, there's not a good wage coming out of the place. So you can see people have a better standard of living in Romania, working in a Romanian garment factory than they do working in an Italian garment factory. You know, so there's not too many cars in the car park now in an Italian garment factory because the cost of living is so high, but there's a base wage to be made. So, if, you know, I, I would consider that a lot for our stuff that we can provide income no matter where the garment's coming out of, regardless of the tariff. Mm-hmm. And um, I suppose that comes back to the whole fair trade and, and ethical uh, business Absolutely. model. That, yeah. that's I, think it, I think it is. Like, there's no joy if you were getting garments made and the people who are making them you know, are skilled laborers, more skilled than I am. It's easy for me to color in a piece of paper and send it off to somebody and saying that's my design, but like I'm not stitching together. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's. Uh, I've seen. I've had an insight in the past into some of the work that goes into making these garments, and it is truly incredible. You know how how they can have so many sizes and so many technical pieces, and and they all come out looking. You know, from regardless of the size, they all look identical, or regardless of the design, you know, hundreds upon hundreds of them all look identical. It's, it's yeah, incredible. yeah. We have a rain jacket coming out, and there's thirty seven panels. And the seventy-one individual stitching operations, you know, and to me, that's an amazing thing that they can set up a production line of people to go and do that, being swapped from one to the next. I think we'll leave it then on that sort of a um, good news or positive story there about. Um... It's politicians might put some hurdles to us, but it's only a claim. So, 
I think for all us consumers, you just drop it into the wee ring and pedal over, keep it easy, keep the heart rate down, and it'll all be grand. No, no Strava KOMs. Yeah, yeah. And for any, uh, <laughs> for any cycling tips, just to introduce Ronan to them, who mightn't be aware. I do remember, I do remember <laughs> maybe 25 years ago when you were a child beating me in a time trial on a borrowed loop bike. I just thought, oh yeah. Uh, did somebody give you, I think somebody gave you the bike? Or uh, at the end of, I, th- I think that night I had, the only thing that was mine was my shoes. Yeah. And I just remember <laughs> thinking that kid is a bit of talent. He'd go far. So there you go. Uh, don't be there. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Miles. Thank you for your, for your okay, time. Okay, everyone. Best luck, man. I'll, I'll talk to you soon. All right. So we heard from a definitely someone who is more of an expert than the three of us on the complexities of Brexit. We heard from a young pro trying to navigate the new system. And we heard from a brand that is also trying to figure out what to do. And I think the general consensus is no one's really sure yet. And this will be an ongoing story. We, We just wanted to get more of a picture together than what we talked about on the regular podcast because this is a pretty big deal for for the cycling industry in the UK and in Europe and especially in the last couple of years the cycling industry in the UK has really blown up um there's there's so many pros that come from the UK now and i mean so many like grand tour winners olympians cycling is such a big deal there but it remains that the biggest races in the world are all in europe so a lot to wade through but hopefully this episode kind of either gave you more questions and made you more curious or helped you understand something i don't know it might have just infuriated other people. You never know. Probably. R. I. As Kaylee says, R.I.P. Our mentions. R.I.P. His inbox. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ronan Shoddy, thank you so much for hanging out, doing some interviews, talking to some people, getting some insight. That's been good. Getting a bit of insight. Um, yeah. Just let, like we say, let's hope things become a bit smoother sailing from here on in. I had no idea this was going to be my first podcast topic when I joined Cycling Tips. It kind of Brexit was the last thing on my mind, so it was a uh, quite quite interesting. Yeah, just just chatting to a few people there and, and you know getting the getting a better understanding of it. Yeah, well, you did good. We'll aim for an easier one next time, eh? Please do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> next time we can talk about disc brakes versus rim brakes. <laughs> The ongoing favorite topic of the podcast. If we didn't get people angry about breaks, it will get them angry about rim breaks versus disc breaks. Now, what what we really need is just a, a podcast where Ronan tells everybody how you actually go out and smash ev- uh, an Everest in, how to take the scalp of Contador. Rim breaks. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that is it for today. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week. With the regular crew, Kaylee and James will be back. And Dane, all right, that's it. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. (laughs) 